Hello, everyone. Welcome to the July 25th QPSC. Welcome to the July 25th QPSC. Um, uh, a couple of uh, just remarks before we go into roll call. Uh, the printed agenda has, uh, we usually make recommended times for things. There's a, it's a little bit wrong on there, but not a big deal. Closed session, we're going to probably estimate to be up to 40 minutes today rather than 30. We have some things to talk about. Consent will be 10 minutes. Uh, the QPSC chair agenda item will be 10 minutes. The med staff report will be 40 minutes. Uh, up to 40 minutes. Um, SBU quality report will be 20 rather than 15. Uh, the patient safety and regulatory affairs, we've allocated 20 rather than 5. And the True North uh, um, dashboard, we've given 10 rather than 5, just uh, giving us some allowance. So with that, uh, welcome to the July 25th QPSC. Um, as a reminder, uh, immediately after roll call, we move into closed session uh, where we will discuss 1157 protected items. So uh, these are confidential matters related to the medical staff accreditation and risk management. If you're not part of that conversation, uh, you, uh, we invite you to return back uh, when we go to open at roughly 3.10 p.m. So with that, roll call. Chesty Banerjee. Here. Chesty Bouquet. Here. Chesty Hernandez. Here. And Trustee Jensen is not here yet. We do have a quorum. We have a quorum, and we will move directly into close, please. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the July 25th QPSC. My apologies for that long close session. Uh, we are uh, moving back into open. We'll open up with the agenda uh, item B1, the consent agenda. May I entertain a motion to approve item uh, B1 and 2? So moved. Um, I'll now open it up for discussion. Uh, uh, any comments with regard to action, uh, uh, with regard to approval of the minutes, item B1? Um, Trustee Jensen, everything okay? No, no comments? Uh, item B2, were policy and procedures. There were five system policies and procedures and one John George. Any commentary on that? Uh, given that, uh, I'll uh, take a vote. All in favor of approving item uh, B? Aye. Uh, opposed? Abstentions? Motion carries. Item B1 is uh, now in the books. We've uh, approved that. Moving towards item C, uh, which is our, our standing uh, uh, article uh, discussion. Um, where is Dr. Bullard? I'll wait. What's that? So, so I'll, I'll just frame this, and uh, Dr. Ballard is going to be uh, for the next five minutes or so as we gain back some time. Uh, for this month's articles, I chose to go in a little bit of a different direction than, than I have historically with regard to quality. And I want to give you a brief background on why I chose these particular articles. So I was just in Europe at a uh, medical conference, and one of the educators was a German vascular surgeon. And we were actually just talking, uh, and we were having a brief discussion about medical training in the United States. The conversation steered towards trauma training and our American gun issues, and he remarked in his very German accent that you will probably never fix. And it, he didn't seem to mean it as mean or as insulting. It was more a matter of fact with sort of an air of futility. And that sort of reminded me uh, uh, of what happens here 24-7 in our, in our trauma center. The conversation really stuck with me, and that's why I chose these, chose these articles. And um, uh, Dr. Ballard, as, as we all know, is both our chief of staff and a seasoned trauma surgeon. And uh, I, I wanted to give Dr. Ballard a few moments to, to kind of 
if you will, discuss us through some of these items related to these two actually relatively well-written articles uh, on, on gun violence and trauma. Dr. Ballard, the mic is yours for the next five minutes. And a member of the Hospital-Based Injury Com Prevention Committee of the Western Trauma Association. Excellent. So, you know, I, I appreciate the articles, Dr. Bouquet. I will say that I view them with a jaded eye. Mm -hmm. And um, and not because there's anything wrong with the articles, but because the issue is so enormous and so complicated. And to date, there's not good evidence to support the things that these articles propose. There won't be in any near time enough data to support this because the infrastructure isn't in place to accumulate that data. Um, I think having been a colleague of Rochelle Dicker who started the wraparound project in San Francisco and watching that process have at least anecdotal success after success after success. There are models that can be implemented that can make a difference in terms of individual families and lives and in terms of ho individual hospitals approach to their community specific set of issues. But as one of the articles stated in, in rural areas it's, a, it's an approach to reduce suicides, whereas in urban areas, it's an approach to, to really start to mitigate interpersonal violence. So, you know, there are a lot of trauma surgeons who are taking this dance now that our best bet, at least in 2019, to try to start to reduce the amount of firearm injuries is to actually do it from a legislative and gun control angle. Um, there, are, there is an enormous amount of complex political implication of trying to accomplish something like that as we've seen both in California and on a national level. Um, I know that the American College of Surgeons Committee on Trauma is becoming more and more focused on hospital-based injury prevention programs as part of our credentialing process and our accreditation process to maintain level one, level two, level three status. Um, um, through my work on the Western Trauma Committee, uh, I know that the next rendition of the guidelines to accredit the level one trauma centers includes a strongly worded recommendation that that become part of the um, evaluation process to have more scrutiny of what those programs actually are in the individual hospitals. But we're not, we're not at a well-defined algorithm for what that looks like. Hmm. Trustee Benergy. I mean, CDC at this time can't even do a lot of the data collection on, on that. So, so much of that, you know, to be having more surveillance on violent crime deaths to have more on firearms and every aspect level of data that that we need, so it's really a healthcare, public health, public health crisis. And right. though Congress appropriated a little bit more money, but there's just there really needs to be much more um, on the 
burden on, on the backs of public health to be getting the surveillance data. And again, all of um, so common sense gun policies, I can go on and on. I agree with you in that the CDC's data accumulation is valuable and important, but it's from a view of 10,000 feet. Right. And I think, you know, Dr. Dicker's program, um, the programs out of uh, the upper Midwest in Chicago and Detroit that have implemented other um, models of uh, community-based immediate violence intervention, um, and they have different names depending on the program, but almost the elders that go in mm -hmm. when an event happens and try, try to mitigate any further um, you know, repercussions of, of one violent injury and are trying to change the communities on the ground, you know, on the ground level. There's, there's several different models out there of what we're trying to accomplish. I, I will say that there is a granular level of intervention that the CDC doesn't even begin to scrape the, mm -hmm. yeah, that, that's all psychosocial, you know, so financial based. And so contextual, exactly like you said, it's mm -hmm. different in different places, what in the different root places. causes. So, but it sets the tone, I think, if you're doing that, then it, there's more funding for local initiatives then too, but yeah. You know, the, the, the second article, health systems have a role in preventing firearm injury. I always like recommendations and the like. They, 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 they concluded with that there are three overarching themes for hospitals and health systems mm -hmm. to help prevent firearm injury. First, know the epidemiology and burden of firearm injury in the community served by your healthcare organization. Every community is different and understanding the nature of the problem is key to taking steps to mitigate it. Second, invest in research that identifies those at higher risk of firearm injury and then develop interventions to reach those in individuals and communities. Third, collaborate with other organizations to develop and share best practices and evidence-based prevention programs. Despite the lack of available funding, researchers are continuing important work to prevent firearm injury across the country. Sharing that knowledge and working to add it are crucial. So, um, as always, the articles are designed to spur questions and thoughts. Um, Dr. Villar, do we here at Highland have a hospital-based violence intervention program? Um, we have an injury prevention coordinator, and we have a relationship with a community-based program called Youth Alive. Okay. Um, that relationship has, diff has, has changed over the years. Part of that's because of the leadership at that organization. Part of it is because of our own, um, you know, our own focuses within this hospital and bandwidth to create, you know, continue a relationship that would be productive. And um, I think that there's a lot of opportunities with that relationship to move forward in maybe a more productive way more reminiscent of how it was when Dean Calhoun, the person who started Youth Alive, was at the helm. Mm. That being said, do we have an internal, full-fledged, hospital-based intervention program? No. Okay. Would I like to see one? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Trustee Jensen. Um, thank you. And thank you, Dr. Bard, for all that you do in this area. I think um, you mentioned Youth Alive, and I... It, I um, am 
a colleague and a friend of Ann Marks, who's the director of Youth Alive, and they've been successful in the community, and I know that they've been working with you and with um, with Highland to come in to the ED to to actually do interventions and support at those times when um, violence, when victims of violence are brought here, victims of gun violence are brought here. So um, thank you for that. I think that that's, I know that Anne has expressed her appreciation for that, and I think that there's opportunities. I, I know hopefully you're all aware that there's opportunities for more of that. Mm -hmm. I, I take, of course, take a point if you don't mind just to point out actually since he's in the room, <laughs> uh, uh, one of our leaders in ambulatory, uh, Rafael Valcarano, actually is a new board member for Youth Alive. So, that, uh, yet yet another way, uh, very active uh, uh, leader and family man, and uh, in our community, and uh, one of the other ways where we see some opportunity to strengthen the relationship. It is, I, I agree with Dr. Bullard, uh, a little bit of a. Um, uh, a strained relationship that has had its ups and downs. Uh, we've met with the leadership there, our PACE team, along with myself and others, and we've had some progress, uh, but sometimes it's a bit of an ebb and flow, but uh, an important uh, issue and an important relationship, to be sure. So, mm -hmm. Just Thanks. wanted to point you out. Thank you. Mm -hmm. If I could just add of course. Um, to the, I think one of the things that Ann and I just talked about, it probably been a year or so, um, Ann from Youth Alive, the director, was um, all of the work that that it, that Highland especially has done in terms of domestic violence and our outreach and intervention and, and having someone in, in the ED and available. So um, that's a great model, I think, which domestic violence, of course, isn't always, um, it's always interpersonal, but it's not always gun violence and it's not always, it's not always um, a, an issue of trying to make the person to ensure the safety of the person immediately because the, the perpetrator often is not gone or arrested or something, but mm -hmm. there are similarities and I think that that model has been effective. So. We, just for the record, we, we participate in other uh, initiatives through our uh, coordinator, uh, um, uh, not just with uh, relationship with Youth Alive, but other sort of multidisciplinary uh, relationships. I actually had the pleasure of attending one of the uh, uh, I forget what it's called, but it's a uh, sort of interdisciplinary meeting that involves the U.S. Attorney's Office, the uh, District Attorney, local faith-based organizations, Highland uh, or AHS and others where we're trying to uh, uh, break the cycle of violence. So it's kind of one of these um, uh, early intervention or uh, programs that, that take people who have either been victims of violence or exposed to violence and try to um, um, chart and support different paths for those individuals and we play an important role in that program and I think there's a couple of others as well. Open Unite is one. Yes, exactly. I want to thank everyone for that dialogue and uh, to you Dr. Villar, not to put you on the spot right now, but uh, I, I want you, to, you and the trauma leaders to think are there any asks you have <coughs> of the board uh, and or your senior leaders in, in particular addressment of this issue uh, for, for future thought. Uh, thank you for that discussion, everyone. With that, we'll close item C, and we will move to item D, the medical staff reports. Um, I'll note that uh, the chief of staff, uh, Dr. Marzouk, uh, is, is wasn't able to make it today, and he didn't have a representative, so there will be not there will not be an Alameda Hospital report. Um, how about we start off with Dr. Ingenio from San Leandro? Welcome, Dr. Ingenio. Certainly, thank you. Um, my report is documented it's on page, looks like page 80. 80. Yeah. Correct. So. Uh, Hello. 
the MEC um, did meet and um, uh, credential and privileges are there. There were 47 resignations and that's obviously related to uh, the uh, application to the Highland Medical Staff. Uh, physicians who were of low activity, a number of uh, locums, uh, emergency department physicians and teleradiologists, etc. From the staff, essentially, so they will resign. Uh, so there was other You're sitting too far from it, so the gates pulled all the way up. Okay, sorry. Well, now we're all deaf. Is that better? Is that better? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the uh, True North metrics were reviewed. Um, there still are concerns for uh, the uh, response rate, um, and they were reviewed by Tanvir, and I, I'm sure he will discuss those further. Um, the um, other reports are noted. I think there were a couple of uh, transitional items that are important to discuss. The pathology services will be taken over by um, uh, Highland and um, Dr. Jerry Collins, who's been on staff for 37 years, actually has chosen this moment to retire. And um, we actually had a meeting of uh, part of the final meeting of the San Leandro medical staff yesterday evening, and he was recognized uh, there. And I think he was delighted to be there with a number of the, the staff that he's worked with for a number of years. Um, but I think that transition has been sorted out well. I, the, the one concern was related to frozen sections, which are immediate pathology reports during surgery, and I think that uh, a good system has been worked out. And the general surgeons are happy. That really relates to the general surgeons mainly for cancer diagnoses. Um, the emergency department was probably the most of our discussion. And um, you know, I think there are still some significant issues there after discussing with the uh, Dr. Afzali, who's the chief there, um, that there have been usual seasonal down uh, volumes and the left without uh, being seen is, is basically similar. There were some concerns about the neurology coverage because the two neurologists who actually did tend to go to both Eden and San Leandro have actually resigned from the San Leandro medical staff. So there will be a void there, but I think that there's work being done to uh, engage both the Alameda neurologists and the Highland neurologists to have that coverage. And it may, in, in the short term, involve some transfers of those patients if they show up in the emergency department. And we'll see. I think my main concern related to that is inpatients who need neurologic consultations. And so that has to be worked out because that'll happen. And, you know, for a, a regular floor patient, that's not a big deal. But if there's an ICU patient that needs a neurology consult, that is a problem um, if there's not a neurologist on staff. Um, the, Dr. Jamaluddin's working on that. And I think he uh, has some uh, plans uh, with the uh, Highland physicians. I think um, the message that I got in terms of the emergency department uh, staffing and another thing that's come up before on closing the beds was um, really related to I think the bottom line was related to communication when there are changes. I think uh, the staff there all believe there needs to be improvements and changes in the way the staff is done. There was essentially no engagement with the physicians 
and uh, the staff there, and I think that went over very well. And my sense is the esprit de corps there is very poor, very poor. They've lost a number of nurses. The social work department was problematic there as well. Um, and then even just recently, there was proposed changes to, to Fast Track, which is the, the department for less acute uh, people, which still remain to be seen, um, how those will work out. Um, the question related to quote unquote bed closure, um, after um, I've gotten some more granular information from Dr. Afzali, is really there's not a definitive bed closure, it's a staffing issue, uh, which is effective inability to take care of patients in a number of beds at times. And I think with the lack of esprit de corps, there's uh, people who call in sick, and there's really very little margin if the ED becomes busy um, to uh, absorb anything further. Um, if there's any sick calls, the managers are not taking patient assignments, and, and that was um, theoretically going to be worked out with uh, Lori. Um, and hopefully that will improve but their message was they need, they request that they're involved in those staffing. They understand the staffing things may need to be done, but uh, having that, them involved early on to, to help with uh, understanding of what the ramifications of that will be uh, should be done. Um, the, uh, the longer lengths of stay, to me, they're totally unacceptable compared to previous statistics, how long patients are remain, remaining in the ED before they get to a bed. Um, and I realize that's different across facilities, but it, it's just way too long. There are too many patients boarding in the ED. There are too many psychiatric patients that absorb the beds. And then there's, you know, those nurses have to take care of those patients. And, and then there aren't beds for the, the, the normal flow. So hopefully that can be addressed. Um, and this is going to be even more problematic with the epic transition in September, I think. Um, so stay tuned. Um, Department of Medicine, uh, there really were no other major issues. Um, there were still ongoing discussions with Dr. Ballard about the exact structure because at the end of Ju um, July, there will no longer be an MEC at uh, San Leandro, but there'll be a leadership council of which the different departmental members, it's going to change a little bit. Um, because there are more departments here you know, at San Leandro, and typically all of them were encompassed in three departments. Now they're going to be seven, I believe, um, leaders there, of which a number of them will be island physicians, pathology, anesthesia, um, and, and a few others. So um, I think that'll work. The, the plan for that meeting is going to be similar to the time of our current MEC in the evening on a Tuesday. Um, and um, other logistics need to be worked out at the meeting. Um, I think there's still, um, some of the MEC members, especially the ones who are going to be voting, there's been significant concern about the attending the MEC at Highland, and I've brought this up a number of times. It's, you know, right smack in the middle of the morning on a Wednesday, or typically the San Leandro meetings are all done mm -hmm. evenings or during, the short ones during, during a lunch break with lunch. So that's, that's going to be a problem I can anticipate. Um, and that concludes my report. Trustees, any questions for Dr. Ingenue on the San Leandro Med Staff Report? Dr. Ingenue, as you know, I asked the same questions. Uh, for, can you uh, 
uh, in anticipation of ranking your top concerns, I'm going to remind you of what you said last month. Uh, number one was nurse staffing. Number two was EPIC. Number three was the merger, which is now occurring in six days. Can you uh, talk to us now about where your current ranked concern list is? I think the first two are, are unchanged. Nurse staffing number one, EPIC yes. number two? Yes, because those are two of the immediate ones. I think the third one, which I didn't really discuss much here, is you know looking at OR volumes, they're a little bit down. It could be seasonable, seasonal, um, and the operating room, you know, being a surgeon tends to be the driver of a lot of the business and a lot of the activity at the facility. You know, my, my sense is um, we're not engaging some of the community physicians who did a lot of elective procedures there as much, and they're not bringing them there as much. And I think that that should be a focus, quite frankly. Oh, our um, volume is number three? Yeah. Um, so that's a concern I have across a few different specialties. Can, can you briefly comment on sort of the tenor of, of, the, uh, of, of the San Leandro medical staff as we move into merger in six days? I don't think there really have been many issues. I think there's, there's still a little unclear and that, that's part of the reason I had the meeting, or the MEC, not just me, had mm -hmm. decided to have a meeting with the staff last night, mm -hmm. um, was to really discuss what the role of this committee is going to be. I mean, I think uh, after talking to Tanvir, there has to be some case review of local cases there. Uh, I think ultimately all the uh, QRC or whatever it's going to be called, peer review is going to be done at a departmental, departmental level here. But I think that the, uh, they should, not all, uh, I mean, certainly all the cases that are, you know, need to be discussed should be discussed there. And they can all be discussed at Highland as well. But if it's not done on a local level, you're not going to get the engagement of the physicians involved. And, that, and I think the teaching and learning from that um, won't be as Agreed. effective. So that still needs to be worked out. Agreed. Mm -hmm. It's been intentionally vague, you know, after discussions in the, the new Highland bylaws. and and appropriately so because if you have very specific format and you yeah. don't follow it it's worse than not articulating exactly what you need so that that is a concern but I, I think that's what's wrong I don't think anybody has big problems with that good yeah. trustees anything just a question about the reduction in the number of physicians choosing to do elective surgery there do you forecast that that is somewhat problematic for us in terms of long-term relationships with those physicians in the community that have historically used us? Um, potentially. You know, I think that encouraging those physicians to do their elective cases, you know, at the hospital is very good all around. Mm -hmm. The community, the patients in the community want to go there right. um, if they can. I, I think there's, there's a number of challenges, somewhat the limited availability of beds, but I don't really think that's a, a major one. I think uh, there are equipment issues in the operating room for some of the items, and so some of the orthopedic stuff, some of the, the general surgery stuff, it's just not available, so they go where it is. Um, you know, I think the main draw is availability. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is huge. I mean, that's huge for our group. Um, you know, we haven't really changed our practices particularly. Our group did 825 operations there last year. So. Um, and why? Because the staff is versed and the equipment's there. And mm -hmm. so you know, we want to continue uh, working there as much as possible.
possible. Do you have a priority of what to spend money on in terms of equipment? I'm just curious. I know well, that I, you know, I, I think that I, you know, I don't know off the top of my head, but I think we, we have to look by services mm -hmm. um, and speak to the different specialties, ENT, orthopedics, um, and say, you know, what would make a difference for you to do it? And then part of that is nursing. I think orthopedics, there's really potential. With the rehab being upstairs, you know, some of them are, are quite interested in that because you know, the, the, the convenience of having your inpatients mm -hmm. on one floor and being able to see your rehab yeah, patients sure. upstairs sure. is huge. And yeah. it's, it's, it's a great benefit to the patients, without question. Um, the other specialties, I think it's, it's equipment-driven. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I, I, my concern also is, I think, although the ED sheer number, if you look at sheer number of visits to the ED compared to Highland, and San Leandro, it's remarkable what they are relative to each other. You know, you, I mean, it's like about a third or so of the visits of San Leandro Highland. You'd expect it, or maybe closer to half, you'd expect it to be just a huge difference. But it's it's quite significant, the volume there. We, they don't, you know, the orthopedists report to me, they don't see a lot of like, hip fractures and stuff. They're all taken to other mm -hmm. facilities. Where they're on call, some some of them are on call at multiple facilities, and like, well, my patient from here isn't brought here, it's brought over to a different facility, I'll operate on them there, but mm -hmm. you know, why weren't they brought? And that's, I think, something that, you know, I've got to give credit to James Jackson when he was here. He really spent a lot of time reaching out to EMS yeah. and the community mm -hmm. um, when he was here to help with that relationship. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and, and I that, think a lot of that's dropped off. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's huge, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. That, that message has to be reinforced all the time. It's not like you do it once and then EMS knows, like, hey, if we are county, we need to bring it here before we redirect. So it's an ongoing right. engagement. So, and an ongoing engagement. You know, and really, um, I think some of the physicians, as, as uh, simple as it may sound, being engaged by the administrators, I think, really helps feeling that they're, you know, they're valued to, uh, and I, that's you know, obviously a little different in that location compared to here, um, but I think it helps and ask, just being asked, what do you need? What, what can we do? I, I don't even know if the Blue Cross contract is still, has been negotiated yet, is it? It's still not. So that, I mean, that's been going on for years and they, a lot of patients just can't go there. I mean, it's not even optional. So, I mean, and, and I think that that delay is, hurting a lot of things too. What's the status on that um, with the Blue Cross? So we've brought in a, a uh, consultant that's looking at all of our contracts right now and so that particular contract for uh, San Leandro it's again you know some of the challenges that we have in many cases it's not that we don't want to it's not that we don't want to partner with a, with a health plan it's the health plan has no interest in partnering with us and so we're engaging in those conversations trying to see how we could you know, make sure that we're providing another access point for those for those you know patients that want to come to that facility. So we're working through that right now with our consultants to look at all of not just that one, but all of our contracts and seeing how we could you know better position ourselves to you know become an alternative for those health plans where you know they can send some of those patients this way. Mm -hmm. So it's not facility by facility, but for the system. Correct. So I think it's just communication more that so folks know where it is, what's happening with the, um, with that, the now it's like a more system-wide review that's happening mm -hmm. about how to do that. So that's why there might be a slow, a slower pace 
you know, well, I think... With respect to I one mean, single facility. I think one of the other things that would be, uh, it, it's hard. Highland has private rooms. Eden has private rooms. Summit has private rooms. Most of the, the newer facilities have been rebuilt. San Leandro does not. And with bringing all those, those beds online um, on the third floor, um, and some of those are going to be upgraded, from what I understand, which will be nice to have those rooms. I think there really needs to be work to, to spiff the second floor because it's old, it's tired. Um, and then with those beds available, spreading the patients out. There's cost involved in that, clearly, you know, having uh, potentially even if you have the same number. But that is the way, I think, um, to also engage some of the physicians um, to bring their patients because the patients want that. And we're serving this community. You know, that that is the community, and a lot of those patients want to go there. Yeah. And so. then for the physicians to then the post-op and the others and things to kind of have that whole continuum if they, if they could to be using those, like you said, having the acute rehab up because coming in for the surgery, but uh, like some of the pre and post is yeah. also what we need to have, right? Yeah. I, I, I think I appreciate Dr. Engineer pointing out uh, all, of, all of these different opportunities uh, as it, so the, con the context of the uh, conversation as I understood it was kind of what what is the driver of the recent or may, may be the major contributors to this recent decline in surgical volume and I, we've seen it as well um, uh, of all the things I heard um, uh, it's sort of year over year the biggest uh, piece that I'm aware of is anything that's directly attributable to the change in the operations that's connected to the rehab construction. And a big portion of that is some of the things related to the throughput because of the beds uh, being offline, uh, but also, uh, uh, as uh, we shared with you all, and you may recall, uh, the practice that you're just talking about, which is how to, um, uh, how to create an inpatient experience for patients that would be more consistent with a growing standard of care across the community, the market, uh, which is not our reality at San Leandro, which is that the beds aren't, there are no single uh, beds, or the beds are generally not single beds, I should say, in the uh, mid-surge uh, context. And the challenge for us would be that while there may be some attractiveness to creating an environment where you could use a double room in a single capacity, you can't bill for a double room in a single capacity. So you may get additional volume, but then you don't get to uh, um, bring the reimbursement level that comes along with that. And the same thing with surgical volume. I think we, what, uh, just as uh, Dr. Ingenio said, I think what would be important for us to do is actually to look at the breadth of the surgical volume that's um, that uh, sort of year over year has evolved and then try to do this underlying uh, um, uh, calculus of where where is that um, what what might be contributing to that and it could well be yeah you know did the um, did EMS bring um, bring or not bring a patient to San Leandro's ED who was already engaged with a provider who provided care at San Leandro, or is this a situation where uh, the the surgical volume was largely predicated on uh, the patients who were there, who were brought to the ED, who then became patients of the providers who were there? So it's a different sort of situation of whether it is whether it's elective or emergent, a provider bringing his or her, or electing to bring his or her patient uh, to San Leandro to get the surgery, or being available to provide surgical intervention to a patient who shows up at San Leandro. It's both. So it's both. I think it's both. Uh, yeah. But I'm saying I think as a matter of figuring out what is contributing to that loss, uh, is that loss also 
uh, comprised of and what percentage of it is those people who were there who then became patients of the providers there versus those people who were already providers uh, or, or were brought in for elective purposes and not just uh, um, um, uh, the ones who showed up in the ED. And I think we need to look at that year-over-year -year trend to figure it out, notwithstanding your points, which I agree with, is um, we have taken a, an approach to uh, oversight for our, our facilities that's more clinically driven uh, and not as much business driven. So our nurse leaders who are uh, uh, leaders of the campuses aren't the administrative business people who were out doing uh, relationships to build, build practices versus more trying to work on uh, uh, building up the clinical expertise and, and coming from that angle. Not everybody, but, but I think that's the case. It doesn't preclude that from being a tool that we uh, redevelop, but uh, certainly is a shift in the um, uh, oversight model that we've had. Dr. Engineer, thank you for your report. Uh, we'll move now on uh, to... If I, if I could just... Oh, very, two, sec two seconds. I also wanted, because I think six. it's... Six seconds. Uh, <laughs> I appreciate what Dr. Engineer is saying, and I think to your point, uh, Trustee Banerjee, uh, uh, we do and we continue to have, I've had multiple meetings with the various ambulance companies uh, to engage and continue with that dialogue to make sure that we, you know, we're a viable resource for them. Uh, and most recently the county changed providers and now they're dealing with Falk, a uh, different, you know, carrier. And so I've already reached out and engaged in, in having that conversation. That change occurred a couple months ago and so working to com communicate with them. So we continue to have that discussion. The, the reality is in some of those conversations is that in various cases, for example, in orthopedic cases, when a patient, you know, it, it depends on the circumstances and the conditions. You know, the patient is an elderly patient that falls and breaks a hip or has another issue. They consider that, you know, a higher level of care, trauma case or something like that, and they want to take the patient to a different location. And so there's a lot of variables that we work through that. And so but we, we are engaged in those conversations. So, I mean, I just wanted to clarify that those, it is critical. And, and we are engaged and we continue to have that dialogue. I meet with the police department. I meet with the ambulance companies. And so we want to make sure that we have that relationship to make sure that we're continuing to support the organization. Thanks, Mr. Fonseca. With that, we'll move on to the core medical staff report. Dr. Ballard, welcome. Thank you. Um, the core did, uh, core credentialing committee did some really heavy lifting this past month uh, in planning and, and credentialing the oncoming um, providers in San Leandro. We actually had two meetings. 183 physicians were credentialed, um, which I think is a record. Um, Hard work. We, that they were approved by our uh, core MEC, as was the, the non-physician contracts. Um, in terms of the, the items of interest that we discussed, um, we had a, a really thorough presentation by Dr. Bene for the surge data, which is looking better and better and better every month. And I have to admit, I didn't think it would work as well as it's now working. But there's an enormous amount of effort that we now are seeing the fruits of that labor. And it's not perfect data, but it is so much better than it was even three months ago. So some of this program improvement effort is actually starting to, to you know, show its, its worth. Dr. Bullard, excuse me for interrupting. Are, are you saying the data that you're getting is better or the actually? The results. The, okay. We're in the green a lot more than we were six months ago. And we're in the red. A lot less. A lot, lot less. And yellow and orange is also appropriately reducing. So the, the efforts of the, 
the throughput committees and the, all of these meetings that keep happening, are, it's, it's now showing that something's working. And um, it's long overdue. Um, the, the items uh, that, other items that came up is that uh, my esteemed colleague, Dr. Hearn, a former uh, chief of staff, is starting an initiative to have um, reunion for survivors. And um, he's uh, putting his efforts into three primary patient groups right now, one of which is the ICU survivors, um, which I'm exceptionally proud of being linked at the hip to our ICU, uh, the trauma survivors, and the um, heart alert survivors. So hopefully over the next year, we will be getting invitations to come and celebrate the people who have come to Highland and beat the odds and walked out of Highland to have meaningful lives after catastrophic events. Um, another thing that was discussed was Dr. Victorino presented the surgery department uh, presentation, uh, committee update, I mean department update. Uh, it was very forward thinking. I, um, I was even surprised. I'm like, I'm in this department and I didn't know all this great stuff was happening. But, um, but it really, you know, and I commended him during the, the meeting. It's very forward thinking. The work that's being done is, is looking at, you know, what's, what we have in store for us. And um, it was very refreshing and positive. In terms of our uh, continued efforts to streamline and uh, improve workflow through the merging process, the charter for the leadership committee is now undergoing its last, its, its draft is undergoing the last regulatory language scrutinization. And once we get that draft kind of from a language standpoint wrapped up, we will submit it to the leadership committee itself because I feel very strongly that that group of people need to be able to weigh in on what makes sense, what doesn't make sense, what will work based on their previous experience and what their vision is for the leadership committee so that we can merge that group of individuals' vision with what, you know, will fulfill the, the needs of the regulatory part of, of their meeting. So um, my guess is it will be the final draft will be submitted to Dr. Ingenio, hopefully by the end of next week, if not earlier. Excellent. Excellent. That's it. Trustees, any questions of Dr. Ballard on the core med staff report? Dr. Blard, same question that I asked Dr. Junior. What's the tenor uh, of the core medical staff as we move into this merger in five days? I think we're excited. I think we're, we're eager to embrace this idea of a new, larger, um, more inclusive medical staff. We're going to have to work out a lot of the bumps. Right. Like what a QRC is going to look like with, <laughs> you know, zooming in. And I think I'm hoping we can rely on technology to lighten the burden on the people who are running back and forth. Um, so there's that sort of workflow, but I think we're, most of us are super excited to have that added level of voices and, 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 and the input from an alternate campus. Excellent. Um, and I think it will offer us an opportunity. I mean, my, my selfish bias is that, wow, we have another, another group to actually play disaster medicine with. <laughs> um, I think everyone else is like, yeah, this gives us really a lot more flexibility in it terms does. of how we can act like a system. Absolutely. So. Absolutely agreed. 
uh, as we come to the close of the report, um, I'm going to remind you of how you ranked your top concerns last month. Uh, uh, your number one concern was trust. Your number two concern was trust. Your number three concern was wellness. Do you have any amendments to your, your rank list uh, concerns for this, for this month? Um, I still think wellness is number three. I still think trust is number two. Recently, it's, it's become painstakingly obvious to me that every provider in the system needs to raise the bar for themselves in how they behave in terms of their level of professionalism, their ability to interact within the system with other providers and other team members. And, um, you know, and, and no one is perfect. And I think we, we've got a prime opportunity now to start having a culture change in terms of how we as a, as a caregiving community of professionals interact with each other and interact with our patients. So, so not to put words, but to try to summarize, number one for you is physician professionalism. That's fair. Number two, trust. Number three, wellness. Right, and, and I would expand physician professionalism to all caregivers, nurses, okay. Okay. RTs, Caregiver residents. Caregiver professionalism. Got yes. it. Yeah, it's great stuff. Trustees, any other further comments as Dr. Blard comes to a close? Dr. Blard, thank you for your work as always. We'll close with that. We will close out item D and um, uh, we will now move into item E. This is a, one of our standing reports. This is our SBU uh, ambulatory report and we're uh, happy to have Dr. Paul Babaria back, uh, our CAO of ambulatory, to come back and give the report. Hi, Paula. Hey, everyone. Thank you for having me back. Just to rem remind everyone, we, you should presume that the board has read the packet. Uh, we strive for 25% presentation, 75% dialogue, attention to the time. We're, we'll, we'll, I think we've allocated about 20 minutes to this one. Perfect. Um, and again, apologies that we have a standing IT EPIC planning meeting with all of our ambulatory leaders at this time. They will come back here after Epic Go Live is complete. Hopefully those calls can end after Epic Go Live is complete. Um, so I'm assuming you've read through the packet in the write-up. You know, obviously there's a deeper dive into our ambulatory SBU dashboard. Uh, all of the cycle time improvements that you guys heard about the last time I was here, they continue. We continue to have successes. Specialty care is really, you know, far exceeding uh, our expectations. They have shaved off 20 minutes almost of patient waiting time, which you know is really quite remarkable. Um, primary care has definitely made improvements, but had a lower cycle time to begin with, so hasn't quite made as big a dent as specialty time. You'll see the numerous quality metrics there. I'm going to get into some of those um, in the subsequent slides. I think the biggest bucket of red metrics is really our childhood access to primary care. I alluded to this last time where we really you know, are trying to figure out how do we do population health. When you look at our dashboards for the patients who actually show up to our clinic, we're at 98, 99% on this metric. And it's really the patients who are assigned to us by our health plans that we just haven't been able to get them, you know, to show up at our front door where our well-child visit rates are much lower. And then Yvonne Spitaleri and Rafael Vaccarano, who oversee our referral units and call centers, have actually been doing a lot of innovative pilot project work um, using newly in 
enrolled patients, we get data from our health plans and then doing phone outreach to them. And we've actually been invited to share the results from that outreach work by California Association of Public Hospitals at a special seminar that they're doing around outreach because this is a really challenging um, puzzle that no one has quite figured out how to solve. Um, so we're hoping that we can share our lessons learned and learn from other systems along the way. Um, and then we continue to do a fair amount of patient experience work and really do deep dives. We're excited about Sapphire because we'll have much better attribution data that can really help us get to, you know, specifically really provider level reports because we know, you know, to echo some of Kelly's statements that there is a lot of variability in how our providers interact with our patients. And I think that data at that granular level is what we need to really drive improvement on patient experience. Um, so these slides are not designed for you to actually be able to see them, but these next three slides are priming QIP. Hopefully all of you are as overwhelmed by the number of metrics we have as I am on a daily basis. Um, we have a lot of green up there, which is great. This dashboard is already a little bit outdated. Our new one just came hot off the presses four days ago. And just wanted to give a huge shout out to Tenrir and the quality team. So for QIP, we actually exceeded our expectations and hit 20 out of 20 metrics. We only thought we were going to hit 18 at the start of the year. And the quality team has really just been amazing. They've come up with all sorts of really amazing ways of slicing the data, creating outreach tools for us, giving us really the information and tools that my team needs um, to do outreach. Prime, um, I'll get to in a second, we didn't quite hit all of our metrics, but are still doing a lot of data scrubbing and cleanup to see how far we can get. Um, and I know, you know, I just want to share two stories before we get into sort of the rest of the slides. We look at these reports month after month, and it's hard to really know like what is actually happening behind all these numbers. So I wanted to highlight two specific projects for you. One is PC6, which is a QIP metric that looks at seven-day hospital follow-up, and it really looks at when a patient is hospitalized, can they have some sort of appropriate touch or follow-up within seven days, whether, you know, clinic visit, by phone, someone checking with them post-discharge, have all your needs been met? And this was just a phenomenal effort in my mind. Really, you know, Minnie Swift, our care management team, Felicia, members from Ambulatory had this phenomenal work group in A3 to create a process by which we have streamlined how patients get primary care appointments post-discharge. And really, Yvonne and Raphael get all of the credit for that. Um, I've heard from our ED providers or hospitals, they've never had such ready access to primary care. And they actually get in, and we see them, um, which is amazing. When I started to hear people had to wait a year to get into primary care, so I always remind myself of that. But with the seven-day hospital discharge follow-up, really the care managers and our complex care teams were engaged, so they started doing really robust phone interventions with patients um, who are high risk as a bridge to getting them to that outpatient appointment. So I had a patient that I saw in January who had heart failure, um, was admitted to the hospital, really his, you know, I, he told me this story when I saw him within seven days for his post-discharge appointment with me in primary care. Um, he splits his time, lives mostly here in the Bay Area and Oakland, but his mother lives in Arizona. She had been placed on hospice care, so he traveled to Arizona to take care of her. And, you know, in the midst of being a caregiver to her, like, couldn't leave her side, couldn't come back here for appointments, ran out of medicines, couldn't really, you know, in the midst of her death and funeral arrangements, really 
get the medicines he needed. So stop taking all of his heart failure meds. Developed really obviously severe heart failure with an exacerbation. Um, got admitted to the hospital. Was really depressed while still coping with the you know, death of his mother, his own worsening medical condition. And so when I saw him in clinic, already within 48 hours, our complex care team had done a phone call with him, found out that there was actually some insurance issue with one of his heart failure meds, fixed it, took care of it, got him the meds he needed, you know, made sure that he knew about the appointment with me. He said that he did. 48 hours after that call, he was in my clinic. And because they had taken care of everything, they'd gotten those meds sorted out, they'd done the medication reconciliation, I was able to spend that entire visit with him, really helping him cope with the death of his mother, link him to our integrated behavioral health team and clinic who was helping him, you know, get some therapy and coping skills um, to help cope with his loss as well as the medical conditions. And, you know, it took so many people for that care to be provided. So many different prime and QIP projects were a part of that. Um, and that never would have happened without these value-based programs. The second metric is PC4, which is our asthma medication ratio. So Tanvir probably has nightmares about PC4 because it is one of the <laughs> most complicated metrics that exists. The amount of brain power that deciphers, you know, how to code this and the measure spec, it's, it's a nightmare. Um, but then we've also done a lot of clinical work with this. So our subject matter experts, Natalie Curtis, who is one of our Highland primary care providers, and Eric Mahone, who's our outpatient pharmacy manager, really set up working groups with various parts of the organization. And one of them was the ED. So we know that a lot of our asthmatics go to the ED. And so they really worked with our ED leadership and our ED providers to change how they treat asthmatics. So instead of just saying, hey, here's your albuterol, our ED is starting them on chronic controller medications now and inhaled steroids and using our new post-ED to primary care follow-up workflow so those patients can get in. So actually just this week on Tuesday, um, I saw a young man, 32-year-old African-American male from Oakland, father of four, has had asthma his entire life um, since he was six years old. <coughs> his entire adult life has never had a primary <coughs> care provider and essentially uses the ED as primary care. So every year he goes there three, four, five times Previously, every time he went, he would get his albuterol, go along his merry way. Of course, his asthma was not controlled. He would land back in the ED. He went there this time. They started him on a controller medication, an inhaled steroid. He said it was like magic. He was not gasping for breath. He could actually run after his children in his backyard, which he hadn't been able to do for months. And they got him a primary care provider. So he came into our clinic. First time he's ever been to primary care. And now I'm his doctor, and I'm taking care of him. And you know that would not have been possible had we not put in all these structures in place um, through this metric. So I hope you know there's thousands of stories behind these numbers, but I hope that gives you a sense of some of the amazing work that um, people across our organization are doing. Um, the flip side of this is, you know, obviously, especially those of us who are tracking the numbers and, and, and trying to scrub the data, there is the sense we're on this rat race, right? And there's more and more metrics. And we just got word that the state added five new QIP metrics that went into effect 25 days ago. And we're still figuring out what they are and what they mean and mapping them. Um, and things get harder. So these are a few slides. We had our prime kickoff meeting in April um, with key folks who've been working on all of these metrics. And just to give you a sense, you know, for Prime, we're entering now our last year of the Prime program. When we started, all we had to do was report this data. Didn't matter, good, bad, correct, incorrect. Um, and the bar has been raised. And you know, as Kelly talks about, th this is how we raise the bar. 
every year incrementally we have to scrub that data we have to make sure it's accurate we have to figure out what are we doing how are we treating these patients what are all of these like phenomenal innovative clinical approaches that we can do um, to treat our patients in a more effective way and I think we are now seeing the fruits of all of that hard work in just much better patient care um, it also means that the bar is higher year after year and makes it harder to hit some of those targets but um, it's really amazing work and I'm sad that Dr. Jenny Cohen is not here because this she was supposed to present these slides. She's one of our Highland Kasich's primary care attendings. Um, you know, but I think all of these value-based programs have also forced us to like learn what works, what doesn't work in our setting in terms of quality improvement. So for the flu vaccine, this metric looks at for all of the patients who show up during flu season, how effectively are we counseling them and giving the flu vaccine or documenting that no, they really don't want it and the patient has refused. Um, so as of March 1st, those of you probably know, flu season ends at the end of March. We were still hundreds of patients away from meeting this target. Um, so Jenny, who's really industrious, put together an entire pilot program um, where she did a needs assessment. She involved medical students. She involved volunteers. She involved folks in the clinic where they figured out, you know, where are the gaps? How can we get these patients in? And these really ingenious um, bilingual fourth-year medical students outreached all of our patients. She created a 14-page operator standard work with screenshots of where the med students had to look, where they had to click, what they had to say train them and this is what they did you know in a pretty short amount of time they identified 452 patients they were able to reach 189 of them which is amazing in and of itself usually when we do phone outreach our yield is like five to ten percent so the fact that they reached about half is amazing um, some of them refused which is fine you know we honor that refusal and documented it some of them told us hey we had vaccines elsewhere and so we were able to get those records and capture that information that they've already been vaccinated and then 29 of them came into our drop-in flu clinic and due to that you know single effort we got Highlands flu rates up from 75% to 84% in two weeks and met that metric for the entire system um, what was the financial impact of that one alone um, $554,000 two weeks of work with our bilingual medical students. We and should it, probably take them out to lunch or something. I don't know if that happens. <laughs> um, you know, and she presented this out, and I think the other lesson learned for us is we learned a lot. You know, they gave us feedback. Here's the best time to reach patients. When we called them on these days, they weren't available. When you called them at these hours, we had a higher hit rate. Um, and so all of these efforts inform how are we going to do this better and more effectively next time. Um, the other area I wanted to highlight is obviously as we do phone-based outreach and try to move to population health, making sure that we are accessible to our patients by phone and outreaching to them by phone is a critical strategy. Obviously with Epic, we'll be able to leverage other modalities like our patient portal, text messaging, e secure email with patients, um, but we need our call centers to work. And Yvonne and Raphael have just done an amazing job, you know, redesigning our call centers. So I'm gonna have I'm gonna have her walk you guys through it, but I just want to show this to you. So this was our data for about the last two years for our call center volume and abandoned call rate. So the abandoned call rate is in red. That is what percentage of calls do people just get fed up with being online and they hang up. Um, and then that orange line is the response times. Um, and for years, patients have complained about this. Don't make me call you. I'll be on hold for two hours. Um, so I'm going to let Yvonne tell you where we are now and how she got us there. Okay. Um, so the slide is kind of set up. So the top portion is September 2018, October 
um, November and December. And then as you can see, our incoming calls averaged anywhere about 21 to 20, uh, about 23,000 calls. And we were in an abandoned uh, percentage of 20, about 25%. And then as you can see, November was 31%. Um, and then to your right, you can see the average wait time, which averaged about three minutes. Um, and then I can share a little bit, and then we'll, we'll focus on the slide, sorry. Um, as you can see, coming March, April, and May, the decrease in not just the abandoned call rate, but also the increase in calls. So as we reduced um, our abandoned rate, you can, you you know, people, uh, patients start to get wind of it, and so we started actually getting more calls and effectively answering them in about an average of 30 seconds. Um, so you can kind of see the, the data and the, um, the variance there. Um, can you talk about how, all the monitoring, coaching, yes, feedback, and I'm, how you use the data yeah. to get here? So I'll share a little bit about what we did to get to our current state. Um, and I will say that although I want to take all the credit, it was definitely a team effort. And I have to give all the kudos to the call center who worked really, really hard to get us to where we are. Um, in the event to get us to where we are, there was a lot of transparency with data. Um, I do daily, weekly, monthly data sharing with the team and then system level. We share the scorecard and the dashboard. Um, I shared that with my team to let them know, you know, here's where we are, here's where we need to be, what can we do? And with their feedback and input and bi-weekly huddles, you know, we were able to work together to kind of build that teamwork to get where we needed to be. Um, I sent a daily productivity email that kind of highlighted it and said, hey, today we're at 5%, but we need to be at 3%. And I really engaged my team to say, what do we need to do? What didn't work yesterday to get us to do better today? Um, I set goals for my team daily, weekly, monthly, and I would say, hey, this, this month we're at 20%. We need to get of a goal at, to, of 3%. You know, that is our overall system goal. So I would say, okay, next month let's reach a goal of 10%. And so we would set these monthly and weekly uh, goals, and then I would incentivize them. So I would say, hey, if we meet this, then we're going to do, you know, a lunch on me of your guys' choice. We would do random, you know, little team huddles, and I would do, um, like, pull your name out of the hat and do just, you know, little rewards. I would constantly send in our emails, um, you know, good good job today. We meet our, our goal. We didn't meet our goal. and. So just, you know, that that constant communication is really what built this team. Um, and then honestly being present and having an open door policy, like what isn't working well, what is, um, and just having that team dynamic. Um, and then in that I would have to say that really building the morale of the team did a lot and, you know, getting everybody to work and be productive. Um, there, with that, there was a lot of standard work that was created. Um, we had to provide a lot of tools. Oftentimes, you know, we would get a call and we didn't know how to handle it or there wasn't the proper tools to communicate with the team or the clinics. Um, so with that work, and it's still a work in progress. I mean, there's still a lot to, to be done. Um, but we provided grids and reference sheets for each location, um, standard work and new processes and workflows. We implemented tasking for K6, which is a current pilot that we're trying to expand. We have an A3 that um, is currently focusing on phone access. Um, so, you know, we're really diving in and trying to learn the best way and be patient-centered. 
Um, and then we now have team champions, so anytime we do implement something in the call center or in the referral unit, it's making sure that we're not just implementing something, putting it on in an email and saying, hey, learn it, and then, but we're having someone to be that point person and a go-to. So in the event I'm not there, there is a champion that really understands that flow, uh, helped me develop that standard work and is a point person moving forward. And then they can, you know, they send me the questions, the concerns, and then we can have that follow-through conversation. Um, and then there's also priorities, which um, alludes to um, Palavs, when we did the outreach, it's really hard to have the entire call center step off of the phone, right, and do our outreach for these initial health assessments. Mm -hmm. So I implemented priorities so that they, you know, they have a time during their day where they do the outreach and then there's a team of five and then we, we can, that way we can huddle and kind of touch base on our successes or what's not working so well. Um, and then I know this is focusing on the call center, but I think our next slide focuses on the specialty referral unit, which is a, a pilot, but I don't, I mean, I guess I don't want to call it so much of a pilot because it's been going on for a year now. Um, and it was really to improve our phone access and specialty care. Um, so as you can see, it, it started, you know, and it, it's continually doing great. Um, and a lot of these efforts that I kind of learned from the call center played an effect into building the specialty pod uh, for the referral unit. Um, the goal, I don't know how many of you know about the specialty pod, but it's in reach for all our specialty services to provide them either status updates on the referrals for new patients and to be able to get their uh, follow-up appointments in specialty care. Um, you can see we started about 2,700 calls and we are now at 5,200 calls, so we are you know, we are increasing, and so with that, you know, we, we need to now take a step back before that we do expand this pilot um, and see where we need to be to continue to be successful. Um, so that's my spiel. I, just, I will just say I'm so proud of this team. Um, so whenever you guys hear people complaining that no one picks up the phone at the call center, you can tell them it's a lie. Um, and I still secret shopper this number intermittently and I've always gotten through within a few rings. So I, I, I know that that's true as well. Um, uh, if I may say uh, just a moment, um, I've done international call center work in my prior life in a major lifetime ago. This is amazing. Um, this is very much what you would see in a corporate environment where there's like bonuses given and prizes given and free trips for you know Las Vegas given for people to really up their performance. I just want to I say I wish I could give them a trip. Yeah, <laughs> let's find a way to do that. I mean, just the reward should be there for them Oaks to know. Park how, Club done. Yeah, there we go. Something fun. But seriously, congratulations. I just Thank I'm you. really amazed at the numbers. Those are really good numbers. It's remarkable. Yeah. I mean coming down to Five percent, and you said the your system goal is three, three percent. Our system goal, I think, is to be at three percent. I think that's a bench a benchmark. But um, I'm just really proud of the, our yeah. team and where we've gone. And and all of the engagement strategies too, when they feel like they are part of like exploring solutions and how to do that, you can just see. Uh, Yvonne, will you go back to the primary care? Uh, yep. Yeah, this one. So were there additional resources required to take you from 25 down to 5% or was that just the management principles that you talked about? Was there an additional call, call uh, an operator or was there a new investment getting from 25 down to 5%? So when I, I 
So there, there was, uh, I would say that there was staff added, but given, you know, FMLAs and stuff, it really was due to just teamwork, morale, um, and being able to build that, you know, that transparency in our data and getting the team to want to do better um, is honestly what took a lot of, of effort in getting us to where we are. And just the, the staff that were added were in September. Yeah. But then you'll see that didn't actually make a dent until Yvonne came back from maternity leave and instituted all of her leadership principles starting in March. Yeah, so I didn't want to say staffing because it, it... Again, my, my question goes to business modeling for success. What mm -hmm. does it take? Is this a management principle and or an investment? This it's is an offer message mm -hmm. for the code blue table reserve for the end of yeah, This is an all-clear message for the code blue MRI. That's like 30 minutes ago. <laughs> um, that is the end of our ambulatory report, but we'd love to answer any questions that any of you have. Trustees? Paul, would you mind taking us back to the uh, QIP Prime report? Just a, a, a quick question. I, uh, there, there's a lot of green, which, which we obviously love, and I, I was actually trying to read this. Attention all staff. The Highland Emergency Department surge level is now red. Please refer to your surge <laughs> checklist. Attention all staff. The Highland Emergency Department surge level is now red. Please refer to your surge checklist. Can, uh, so obviously we applaud the success. Can you talk to us about the financial impact of those measurements that did not hit target? Absolutely. So the total dollar amount for QIP this year is around $30 million. Mm -hmm. We had only budgeted hitting 18 of those metrics. So the fact that all 20 were achieved actually puts us over what we had expected to receive with a net positive of $3 million above what was budgeted. For Prime, um, I have to go back and double check how many were budgeted. Prime was worth about... Um, $30 million as well this year. Right now, we are still in a deficit of $5 million. I know we didn't budget that entire amount. So we're looking with this data scrubbing, we're hoping to actually recoup the entirety so that between those two programs, we hit the budget 100%. So it'll be right on budget? Mm -hmm. uh, a positive not, or right on? I think we should be able to get right on budget. The okay. one thing which we won't know for a little bit is there is a high performer pool. So whatever metrics we don't hit, if there are other metrics where we exceed that dollar amount, we and will still recoup. recoup all those dollars. So last year, that's what happened. We basically didn't hit $2 million. We were in the high performer pool for other metrics. That $2 million came back to us. Um, so I'm confident about that happening based on the preliminary numbers that we have this year as well. Excellent. Yeah, but the estimates are actually better than what we had seen. I remember in the um, audit committee when we had been talking about like wh where we think we it's going to be QIP as well as Prime, we had estimated that there was a lot uh, that, of uh, work that went into the value the base is, is not where we're going to be. So this is really, really good. Thank yeah. you. Trustee Hernandez. Mm -hmm. Oh, we got it. Um, the excellent report. Thank you. Uh, uh, Pallav, as you know, I'm going to follow my standard work. At your last presentation in April of uh, this year, I asked you to rank list your top concerns. You said number one, epic. Number two, epic. Number three, epic. Can you can you talk to me about your rank list concern list uh, as of today's presentation? Um, I think number one is still epic slash sapphire. Obviously, go live is you know only 
a few more than 60 days away, um, there's still a lot of work to be done. So that, that is sort of our all-encompassing, all-consuming challenge before us, even related to priming QIP. Tanvir and I spent the whole morning figuring out you know, sign-offs for how we're going to do some of these projects um, in Sapphire. I definitely think my number two, you know, to echo some of what Kelly was saying is we're going to learn a lot about ourselves in Epic. It's going to shed light um, on our own practices, our own behaviors. Um, there's going to be a lot more accountability of, you know, how are we taking care of our patients? Are, are we doing it in the timely manner that we need to? Are we doing it effectively? Um, and I, you know, I think that's going to be illuminating and challenging for us as an organization and figuring out how do we respond and react to that so that we can all elevate the bar for ourselves and each other's using the new information that we'll have. Okay. So to maybe to recapitulate, number one, epic for you, and number two, I'll put that under culture. Is that is that, yep. is that acceptable? Yep. Okay. Trustees, any further questions? Thank you for your report. With that, we close out item uh, E. Item F is the patient safety and regulatory affairs report by uh, Dr. Hussein. I'll make note that there was robust discussion about many elements within closed session. Uh, and uh, we're, we're uh, uh, quickly approaching time. Dr. Hussein, any comments with regard to the patient safety and regulatory affairs report, which is included in the packet? No, we had a very robust discussion. We take, as an organization, every patient that comes to our system and their experience here um, we reflect on it thoughtfully and always are continuously improving um, uh, and improving, uh, making our systems for care delivery stronger and using data uh, to illuminate where we have opportunities um, uh, and engagement to drive improvement. Yeah. Uh, and for the public mi microphone, can you give you the, the broad topics of discussion without, without detail? Absolutely. We talked about the uh, CMS complaint validation survey at the core that happened um, in March. Um, and we also had robust discussion around the Alameda Hospital CMS complaint validation that happened in May. Um, and we are very optimistic that we will ha and um, are completely committed to making sure that our organization is back in compliance with those conditions of participation, which reflects the commitment we have to patient care. Excellent. Thank you, Dan. Any other, uh, trustees, any further discussion on the patient safety and regulatory affairs report? Hmm. With that, we will close out item uh, F. And uh, next is item G, the True North Metric Dashboard Review. I'll make note that this is in full record, uh, included within your packet. Um, any comments or questions from the uh, trustees with regard to this standard item, which is in our agenda? I'll, I'll just make note that this was this will be the last iter this, that that is the June TNM report. We all recall that at last month we voted on the forecast for uh, the 1920. TNM uh, dashboard items, which are largely the same, plus or minus one or two. Uh, so that report is, of course, included in the packet. Well, that will close item G. Item H is the planning and calendar uh, issue tracking. Uh, for next month, I've, uh, I've requested that we hear a report from our chief medical uh, information officer and our chief information officer on an update for uh, 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 for Epic Sapphire as we go live. That'll be the effectively the one month mark. So um, uh, Mr. CEO and Mr. COO, if you could just remind our CIO and CMIO if they could just give us a brief update in the one month pre-go live next month. Uh, trustees, we take this opportunity to entertain any other ad hoc presentations which might be requested. No? With that, we will close out item H, and we will go to uh, item I, which is uh, legal counsel report. 
Yeah, the uh, committee met in closed session, considered the credential reports of each of the <coughs> medical staffs and approved those uh, providers being presented for credentials who met the requirements of each of the respective medical staffs and no other action was taken. Excellent. With that, uh, we will close the meeting exactly on time now. <laughs> that closes the 725 QPSC. Thank you. Thank you.